Here is the warning from the introduction to the marriage service in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Marriage is not by any to be enterprised, nor taken in hand unadvisedly, lightly, or wantonly to satisfy man's carnal lusts and appetites, like brute beasts that have no understanding, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God, truly considering the causes for which matrimony was ordained. My aim today is to ensure that none of us are like brute beasts that have no understanding when it comes to marriage. And in a society where the average length of marriages is 12 years, we can't talk about marriage without talking about divorce. And in a society where 28% are in second marriages, we can't talk about divorce without talking about remarriage. As people of faith, our motivations should be driven by God's word. So Hebrews 13 imposes on us an obligation to know what marriage is, lest we dishonour it. So verse 4 of chapter 13 in Hebrews, Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually Immoral. Let's start then by considering what marriage is. And we can begin with Eric, age six, who answered, Marriage is when you get to keep your girl and don't have to give her back to her parents. <laughs> Eric is closer than you might think. Let's turn to Matthew 19 and see what Jesus said. Matthew 19 has a context of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, testing Jesus. It's clear from the questions that they're trying to get Jesus to enter into a debate between two rival schools of Pharisees over when divorce is permissible. But it is noticeable, really noticeable, that Jesus' response is to first clearly promote marriage. So verse 4, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. When confronted about divorce, Jesus takes them straight back to the first couple and the first marriage. First he cites from Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and he remarks that God created them male and female. So we see there that from the opening of the Bible, humanity is gendered. That creation of two and only two genders has heavily governed the response of our diocese to the transgender movement. We spent time thinking about this at our recent diocesan synod. And you can ask me more about that if you want to. I'm not going to spend time on it today other than to say it's a very live and big issue. Here, after quoting from Genesis 1, Jesus immediately quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, to say that it's for this reason, the maleness and femaleness, that a man will leave his parents and marry a woman. Marriage is gendered, and that's one of the reasons that Christians voted no in the same-sex marriage plebiscite. Biblically, there can be no same-sex marriages because marriage is fundamentally about opposite sex. Jesus' words also make it clear that marriage is not something casual, 
but a commitment. So the man is to leave his parents and be united to his wife. That commitment to her becomes his first commitment over that to their parents, or it should be. And we see examples of great difficulties in marriages when the spouse is more committed to their parents than their spouse. And notice how this relationship is to be lifelong and exclusive. No one is to separate them, not their parents, not themselves, and definitely not other sexual partners. If the two will become one flesh, that suggests there's no room for a third. And of course, throughout the Old Testament, after Genesis 1 and 2 are written, we see many examples of polygamy, of many wives. These, and interestingly, these relationships are normally not condemned, just noted along the way. However, by the New Testament, words like these from Jesus make clear that monogamy is to be the norm for Christian marriage. So marriage is an exclusive, lifelong union between a man and a woman. Raises a question, is a de facto relationship marriage in God's eyes? We're worth considering, isn't it? Because 80% of marriages, marriages in 2016 involved de facto couples. It was 31% in 1981. I've heard of a couple who've never married, who've been together for years, raised healthy children in the same way that both their parents never married together for years, raised healthy children. They're obviously committed and it looks like it's for life, so are they married? Well, One of the ways um, this question gets approached is to highlight that marriage is a covenant between two people. It's inspired by words in the book of Malachi at the end of the Old Testament where God is angry at the way the Israelite men are quickly rejecting their wives and getting easy divorces so as to pick up with foreign women who don't worship God. And Malachi describes them as being unfaithful to the wife of your marriage Covenant. So that word covenant is, is picked up. Rather than use covenant, I want to use commitment. In our society, we recognise that a marriage involves making a commitment to the other. And we recognise that it is a public commitment in which the prom- promises are exchanged. It doesn't need to be a big church wedding with an even bigger reception to follow. It's enough if promises are exchanged before a few witnesses in a government registry office. So even in a civil service, the emphasis is on the promises. So in the marriage celebrants handbook that the Commonwealth Government gives to all marriage celebrants, be they religious or non-religious, there's three essential statements that a civil celebrant must make about it being commitment So one of the three essential statements the civil celebrant has got to make is about it being a commitment for life. This sort of idea is in the church um, orders of service for a marriage, but it's even in the civil. This is what it says. The celebrant must say, marriage according to law in Australia is the union of two people to the exclusion of all others, voluntary entered into for life for life as long as we both shall live 
Of course, some take this as as long as the love shall last. But that really isn't marriage to God's mind or the parliament because it isn't commitment for life. God has designed marriage to be a committed relationship between a man and a woman marked by mutual promises of exclusive and lifelong commitment. I once heard a man say, why bother getting married? It's just a piece of paper. To which you could say, well, why bother graduating from uni? It's just a piece of paper. But then it isn't. The piece of paper represents hours of work to fulfil the requirements for the degree. And when you apply for jobs, employers want to see the piece of paper or at least the academic transcript version of it. The $60 marriage certificate you get from the Office of Birth, Deaths and New South Birth, Death, Marriages in New South Wales is a piece of paper, but it's not just any piece of paper. It certifies that a couple have made that lifelong commitment we call marriage. And it'll be recognised by a bank or the RMS when a new spouse wants to change their surname on their driver's licence. But it's much more than that. I've observed how much effort and expense de facto couples put into a wedding ceremony. It's not just another day in their life together. It obviously really means something when the promises are made. Until then, well, it's not a marriage in God's eyes. It's not even a marriage in everyone else's eyes because you can just leave. You haven't made any promises. It's got much less uh, repercussions. If you are married... You are to be committed to the everyday living out of your promises, to caring and loving and to faithfulness. And you won't do that, selfish person that you are, if you don't think about it and make an effort. The best advice I've ever heard on marriage is this. Remember, the grass is not greener on the other side. It is greenest where you water it. So invest in your marriage. You you want your marriage to be a safe haven, a place of understanding, support and acceptance, a, a place where you can have with your spouse a deep emotional connection. There's so much to say here, but successful marriage is all about doing what strengthens the emotional connection and avoids weakening it, weakening it. So Plan to just be consistently kind in what you do and say. Take care how you speak to one another. Be polite. Say please and thank you. Avoid the harsh startups which attack. Instead, express yourself with I feel rather than you at the top of the sentence so that the words come out in a manner which your spouse can hear. And men, listen. Listen with your full attention and communicate you've understood that something was hard or difficult or worrying for your wife. Don't quickly try to problem solve. Sometimes she just wants to be heard and cared for. And remember in all this what you know about God's grace, that you didn't deserve to be forgiven your sin, yet he's done that and suffered the cost of forgiveness in his son's death at the cross. Whenever I'm tempted not to forgive Catherine, and I have very little to forgive her for, for some little thing, I remember God's grace to me. 
he could forgive me so much. And make sure you plan just to have fun together. Why is it that so many couples do lots of fun things when they're dating or engaged and then stop after they're married? You're so stupid. (laughs) No matter how busy you are, you have to make each other a priority. So in a typical week, if you're married, do you have opportunities to catch up with each other daily, just to share and then to do something fun or special, just for yourselves each week. A lot of what I'm saying here is based on an old article that I read with all my wedding couples. It's by Keith and Sarah Condy, who are a Sydney couple. I'm excited that the Condys have produced a marriage course and hope we'll run it at St Mark's in 2020. Now, there's a real risk when a church runs a marriage course and the minister prepares a special sermon on marriage and divorce, that single people will feel undervalued or excluded. Jesus doesn't do that, and we shouldn't either. Before we look at the parts of Matthew 19 on divorce, I've elected to first look at his teaching on singleness. So let's go down from verse 10 in Matthew 19. Still remember on page 845. The disciples have been thrown by Jesus' teaching on divorce so much so that they conclude it's better not to marry. And Jesus doesn't disagree with them and he actually then acknowledges that there are people who've been given singleness rather than marriage. And in that culture, this is a really big thing to do because in this culture, there's virtually a law that all Jewish men have to marry. And similarly in Roman culture. So he, he, he's radical. He commends singleness as just as valid a lifestyle as marriage. So from verse 11, Jesus replies, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. In the Sydney Anglican Synod recently, a man bravely stood up and asked for amendments to the draft policy on uh, gender because it didn't properly acknowledge people like him who are intersex. He is, to take Jesus' words, uh, a eunuch who was born that way, born without all the usual male or female genitalia. And that's a very small um, percent of the population. The second eunuch here Jesus talks about has been castrated, probably as was the custom in those days, so that he could be trusted to guard some king or rich person's harem. The third category, those who live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, seems to describe many who are single. Jesus was pretty radical here, as I said. Later in his letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul simile will commend singleness as a life that means you can be free of divided loyalties that you have when you're trying to please the Lord on the one hand and your spouse on the other. And he says, he's single, he says, I wish you were all like me. It's, it's preferable. So singleness is equally valued. But over the years, churches haven't been exemplarily about encouraging signals, singles. 
unmarried, widows and widowers, divorced people. We, we do dumb things like title the middle service of the day a family service when all we're trying to say is here's a service that caters for all ages from zero to 95. You don't have to be in a family to come. So why call it a family service? It gives the wrong message or can give the wrong message to some single people. We in families don't give enough thought to how to involve the whole body of Christ in close relationships outside of the Sunday service. And we can all, singles and married, buy into one of the dominant themes of our culture that your identity as a person is measured by how much sex you're having or not. In our culture, if we're 40-year-old versions, we're somehow incomplete if, our, if we have sexual yearnings that are not meant, then our lives have not been fully lived. That's how the message comes across. But in the Bible, sexual wholeness is found in two ways, either through chaste singleness or faithful marriage. That's because our identity is ultimately not found in our sexuality, but found in our relationship in Christ. In Christ, you are as whole as you will ever be. Of course, we all need to grow in God's grace, in our ability to consistently live that out in our relationships and our desires and our goals. Our sexuality can be lived out in chaste singleness, the same chaste singleness modelled by Jesus as we develop intimate, non-sexualised friendships and, on the other hand, in the faithful, lifelong marriage he promotes. There's recently been much more thinking and speaking about singleness in this diocese, so I'm learning of all the things we can improve. The key thing is a single person's identity is not located in or our value to be measured by marital status. And I'm sorry, singles, if you've been made to feel second class at St Mark's because you aren't in God's eyes and you aren't in mine. I want to highlight the honour Jesus gives to both being married and being single. I wanted to do that before I move to look at what is said in Matthew 19 on divorce. In Matthew 19, Jesus declares, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Marriage has a very high honour because it's a commitment that God has ordained from the beginning of creation. So it's not to be broken. However, clearly, there's the understanding in Jesus' very words that it's not unbreakable. People shouldn't, but they do. And they did in the first century as well. As I noted, the whole trigger for Jesus' words in Matthew 19 is a question from the Pharisees on divorce. Verse 3, they came to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And then in verse 7, when Jesus has been talking about marriage and the importance of honouring it, they bring him back to their question, verse 7, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why are they so obsessed with asking questions about divorce? Well, it's because of a conflict among two schools of Pharisees. Their conflict is over the correct application of a permission for divorce in Deuteronomy 24, 
verse 1 in the Old Testament, which is why they refer to Moses there in verse 7. In the century before Jesus, divorces under Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, simply enabled a man to write out a certificate of divorce, give it to his wife, and she was divorced. It was that easy. But the issue here is over what are the grounds that enables him to write the certificate. Basically, the Hillel school of Pharisees said it was for sexual immorality, one, or another different ground they called any cause. Now, when you read Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, it seems very twisted to find an any cause ground, but they did it from the words. And not surprisingly, given men's sin, the Hillel school really went to town on what any cause might be. So in practice, the woman could be divorced for something as little as burning his dinner. And also, not surprisingly, by the time of Jesus, these divorces were much, much more popular than the type which required you to go to court and prove neglect of, by not providing food, clothing or physical affection. It would have been one of these any-cause divorces that Joseph considered when he thought Mary's pregnancy was due to cheating on him during their engagement. Remember, um, Joseph was described as a righteous man but didn't want to cause hold up Mary to public shame. The thing about these is they were private, quick and easy. Now, the Shemai school of Pharisees disagreed with the Hillel school. They said that the whole phrase, the whole phrase, a cause of sexual immorality, meant nothing more than one ground for divorce, which was sexual immorality. There was no any cause ground available. Now, I don't know what school they're from, but these Pharisees asked Jesus which side he's on. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? In other words, is Hillel right that there's an any cause ground of divorce in Deuteronomy 24? Well, in his answer, Jesus mostly sides with the Shemai school. Verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. This verse over the years has caused uh, the Christian church to conclude that Jesus is laying down a rule that the only valid reason for divorce is sexual immorality, so adultery, unfaithfulness. But I'm convinced that Jesus was saying here that when it came to the writing of a certificate on the basis of Deuteronomy 24, then the only ground for divorce under Deuteronomy 24 was sexual immorality and not the Hillel any cause. Jesus wanted marriage honoured by all. He, he's not saying that there are no other grounds for divorce in the New Testament, though many have taken him to be saying that. The people who hold this position are very able theologians and church leaders, so it's not something that can be lightly put aside. But as we'll see now as we turn to Paul's writing in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, there's at least one more New Testament ground for divorce. Now, I want to pause here. We're three quarters of the way through, let me assure you. But just to say 
why are we doing this? If you haven't sort of worked out, why are we worried about these different words and the meaning? Well, as Christians, we get our lead from the Bible, don't we? Not from our culture. We want to know from the Bible what God approves, what the Lord approves as, as valid grounds for divorce and remarriage. So let's keep going because Paul also affirms a high view of marriage. We need to turn to page 984. It's page 984. It's worth turning it up. Hey, Rob, can we have the air conditioning, please? Thank you. So page 984, verse 10. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord, A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Here Paul's reminding Christians that they can't just walk out on their marriages and marry another. In Roman law, which would have covered Corinth, where these recipients are are living, divorce was too easy. It was divorce by separation. Basically, all I have to do was walk from the house if my partner owned it or tell my partner to leave the house if I owned it and then we're legally divorced and free to remarry. The Roman practice is so against a commitment that is exclusive and for life, isn't it? Divorce under Australian law is closer to the Roman than the Bible position, isn't it? It's divorce by separation and not for any particular ground. Of course, the separation has to be for 12 months, which makes good sense, a a cooling off period, and there may well be reconciliation in that time. Paul here urges the Christian here to try and be reconciled, and if she can't be and remains separated, then you notice what he says, she needs to be single and celibate, and the same for the man. Divorce for falling out of love is not biblical. There's been no breaking of vows. Marriage is based on promises, not just on feelings. When the heat of passion cools, this is not a single signal that the marriage is coming to an end, but it's a signal that the marriage needs attending to. But it's a different outcome where the partner is a victim of desertion. First, as you'd expect, as Paul goes on to talk about that, he reiterates that even in marriages where one is a Christian and one is not, that the mixed faith character is no reason for the Christian to separate and divorce their husband or wife. They have a one flesh union after all. But if the unbeliever deserts the marriage, then the Christian is no longer bound and can therefore remarry. Verse 15 is where Paul says that. Verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. It's interesting, that explanation of Paul at the end of verse 15. God has called us to live in peace rather than the endless conflict to try and change the mind of someone who has turned their back on you Of course, you you try. It's a big thing to to lose a marriage, but you're not obligated in such circumstances. I think here we might also, at this point, note Paul's words to widows should they consider remarriage 
as a general application to all who marry or remarry. Verse 39, right at the end of the chapter, at the top of page 985, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Paul wants to save the widows from the challenges of a mixed marriage, where both are not sharing the same goals and able to be an encouragement in service and growth in the Lord. And, of course, that's why we encourage our teenagers as they will make their choices in time to come to marry a Christian as well. But I must say I'm rather entertained by Paul's comment as to why he doesn't think the widow should remarry anyway. He must be thinking of a lot of a whole lot of hopeless men when he writes in verse 40. In my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is. <laughs> I love that. What about though divorce and remarriage? where there has been domestic abuse. Jessica had married Rick after only dating for a year. She felt deeply in love. Rick was a passionate and even intense guy and was touchingly protective of her. Only once they were married, things took a turn for the worse. Rick became verbally abusive and his sweet protectiveness turned into a bitter jealousy. Eventually, when he lashed out at her physically, She felt that he'd put a fist through the coloured window of her dreams. She packed and left immediately. Should Jessica separate? Does she have valid grounds for a divorce? The publicity given to cases of domestic abuse among Christians in recent years have caused churches, including our own diocese, to think long and hard about how to care for victims and relate to the perpetrators of domestic abuse, and so it should. Should Jessica separate? Most definitely. Most definitely she should. If she doesn't feel safe, then she should remove herself to some place safe. And if Jessica belonged to St Mark's, we would support her to do that. Her actions should never be viewed by any of us as desertion of the marriage. Jessica needs quite a bit of assurance that she hasn't sinned. It's hard because when she married, she knew it was a lifelong commitment. And she knows the Bible teaching that a wife must submit to her husband. Jessica has run to feel safe, but now she's feeling guilty. So what do we say? Well, Jessica needs to be reassured that domestic abuse is wrong and that God never expected her to submit to that. Biblical headship does not mean dominance or control, but it means the man takes the initiative in self-sacrificial service that is characterised by love, care and kindness. To the extent that Rick acted that way, Jessica was called to voluntarily submit, but he didn't. And a woman can never be forced to submit. It's a voluntary thing in response to self-sacrificial love and service. So what comes next? Well, for the purposes of today, please assume that all the practical details of where to live and money have been worked out. And I know I'm passing over something that actually takes a lot of time and is very stressful. But in the big picture of the relationship for our purposes today... Rick is going to need to take responsibility for what he's done and genuinely repent and seek forgiveness from God 
and Jessica. And that could take a very long time. And it may be that Jessica will come to a place of forgiving him. It may be she never will, but she can never be pressured. It's her decision. And certainly she shouldn't ever think she has to forgive when there hasn't been genuine repentance. In her own time, she might be even reconciled to him. But that doesn't necessarily mean going back to get her either. Is Jessica one of those separated wives that Paul told to not separate or to not uh, remarry back in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 7, whom Paul commanded to remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband? Assuming reconciliation to Rick is never going to happen, then does this mean that while she might eventually divorce Rick, she's to remain single from then on? What do we say? Well, no one in the New Testament directly addresses domestic abuse in marriage. But I think we can apply the same principle we saw a moment ago in verse 15, where the non-believing spouse deserts or abandons the marriage. Remember that in that case, the believer was free to remarry. I think that by his actions, Rick has effectively abandoned the marriage through his unrepentant, abusive actions. In a recent report to our synod, the Diocesan Doctrine Commission reasoned this way. By making it impossible for the believing spouse to remain in the marriage, it may be argued that the abusive spouse has unilaterally abandoned the marriage. Following the moral logic of 1 Corinthians 7.15, this would suggest that in such circumstances, the believing spouse is no longer bound to the marriage and is free to remarry. And if the believing spouse is a believer or claims to be, then such a person is acting like an unbeliever by abusing their spouse. And so again, they've effectively abandoned the marriage and the same result would follow. Not to say any of this is easy for the woman at all. So today we've taken on a big subject. Haven't covered everything I wanted to. I'm happy to be asked uh, your questions and to try and help think through particular issues and, and things. I think one of the things in all this as we think about marriage and divorce and domestic abuse is to recognise all of the fallenness of us all, to recognise that in all marriages there'll be normal dysfunction and struggle and difficulty and therefore the need to forgive each other but that at times it goes way beyond that to the position of where one or one of the partners is trying to control by threats and, and other harm their, their spouse and then we're into a new area. Let's pray.